What we look forward to shapes how we live. There's a website um, you can visit. It's called thedeathclock.org. And it claims to be able to predict the date of your death, if you so wish to know this. And all you have to do is put in your, your date of birth, your nationality, a few stats about your height and weight and the, the things you eat and how much exercise you do. And it quickly conjures up a, a date. And it places it on a nice gravestone for you, just to ram the point home. I was a little bit disappointed uh, at its prediction that I'm going to make it only to August 2049. I'm slightly miffed. I think um, if it took into account my family history, I'd like to think that maybe I could be slightly more optimistic than that. Uh, but of course, we're all getting older, aren't we? Uh, we're all moving a day closer every day, whether we like it or not. The question is, what is it that we're moving towards? Just death? Is that the end? Or do we have something more hopeful than that? Now, we are at the end of Peter's final letter today. Uh, we saw in chapter 1 that at the time of writing, he knows that he doesn't have much time left for this world. Being an outspoken Christian in Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero is not the kind of thing that would get you a good result on the deathclock.org. But to Peter, despite all of that, is a hope-filled letter. Because more than anything else, Peter's message to his fellow believers in the ancient world is to hold on to the certainty of Jesus' return. We have great things to look forward to as his people. And that makes a difference to us now. What we look forward to shapes how we live. The first couple of verses of chapter 3 are a kind of recap of Peter's message in the whole letter. He says in verse 1, not for the first time, that he's writing to remind his friends, these Christians in the first century, of things they already know. So they recall, verse 2, the things that have been said in the past by the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament writers, and by the apostles, those who were already writing the New Testament. And in particular, and we've seen this already in the last couple of weeks, but we see it most explicitly in chapter 3, Peter's message is to remember what has been promised about Jesus' coming. Not just because he wants them or, or wants us to have good theology and to be correct, but because what we look forward to shapes our lives now. Um, it's true of all people, that statement, isn't it? Uh, if you take the John Lennon view of life, you know, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Well, if that's your view of life, then it only makes sense to invest everything you've got in your short time on earth. There isn't anything else. Enjoy it. Do what seems right to you. It doesn't even matter in the end. Or if you're one of those people who is dreading the end of the world and preparing for a, a catastrophe, whether it's nuclear or climate or alien invasion or whatever it might be, then you're going to devote your life to digging your bunker and buying all the toilet rolls and baked beans and whatever else you're going to need are possible. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is going to return soon, that God has not abandoned his world, that in the words of Martin Luther King, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, well, then you're going to live differently, aren't you? Your priorities are going to be shaped accordingly, aren't they? So let's look at what Peter says one more time and think about these two things. The question of eschatology, what is it that we hope for, to use the technical term, and the question of ethics, how do we live? So starting with the first one of those, what is it that we hope for? Is Jesus really 
coming back. When something feels like it's taking a long time, it is easy to begin to doubt that it's actually going to happen, isn't it? It's the classic one of children on a long car journey. Well, seriously, I suspect that most of us who've been involved in the Cafe 55 project, the hub project as we called it for, for several years, have probably felt something like this about that project at some time between 2017 and today. So let's be honest, first of all, it isn't that strange to stop and wonder, will Jesus' return really happen soon? Now, there have been various times in history when groups of Christians have been convinced that it is imminent. Uh, there's quite a cluster of those, perhaps unsurprisingly, in the approach to 1000 AD in medieval times. And we can remember, can't we, some of the apocalyptic predictions that were associated with the year 2000 a few years ago. And there have been various other specific dates. I remember in the early 1990s, some people getting quite worked up about some date in October when, when the world was going to come to an end. But they all came and went, and Jesus hasn't returned yet, has he? So asking the question is quite understandable, but there are different ways of asking it. And Peter responds to both of these here. Um, is that question being asked with scepticism, or is it being asked with a, a hopeful yet fragile faith? First of all, Peter answers or speaks about the sceptics. Above all, he says in verse 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing is what they do. And following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. These are the people who will scoff. They will mock, laugh. But the idea that we might pin our hopes on the return of a guy who lived and died in Judea around 2,000 years ago. Where is this coming? You can almost hear the ridicule in their voices, can't you? Well, they were around already at the time of Peter. And it's not just that it seems to have taken a long time for Jesus to come. As I've said, to some extent, it would be understandable to ask that question. But also, they say, everything just carries on as it always has, verse 4. Well, Peter replies in verse 5, they deliberately forget. So these are not just people who don't know about Jesus or have never heard of what he said, what he promised. They know, but they don't want to know. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, Peter says, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Their view of the world, it seems, is so reduced and distorted, they just think it just turns, it always has, that's just what happens and it will go on forever. Nothing changes. They've forgotten, deliberately, it's willful ignorance, that verse 5, it was by God's word that the world was created in the first place. And as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 adds, it is Jesus who sustains all things by his powerful word. It's not that he created the world and then just headed off to have a look down and see what would happen as he just left it all running. Literally the opposite. The universe, all there is of life, is sustained every day by the one who made it, who made us. Every breath we take. It's the word of God that keeps everything going. They say everything goes on as it always has. Well, only because of Jesus. And as verse 6 reminds us, he's intervened before in the flood. 
He created the world. He created us. We are responsible to him. But there are people who deliberately forget that. So verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Listen, people may laugh about the promises that God has made through his apostles and his prophets. People may question whether God's word really can be trusted. But Peter says the same word of the Lord that they doubt and disbelieve is the same word by which judgment will come on his world when he returns. If Peter's big theme in his letter is the hope that we have in Christ, the hope of his return, the flip side of this is that those who deliberately reject his hope, reject what Jesus has said and has spoken, will be found wanting by him. Um, You can see it again if you glance over to verse 16, when Peter speaks about his colleague Paul, St. Paul, who of course wrote some quite big chunks of the New Testament. I love the fact that Peter notes that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. There's something for anyone who's ever struggled with Romans or Galatians. I've said to myself more than once, you're not wrong about that, Peter. But look, parts of Paul are deep, but not unclear. Peter says they're hard to understand, not impossible. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, Peter says, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. That's his warning here. I'm not going to labour the point this morning, because um, Tom said more about this last week. We saw it in chapter 2. And if you weren't here last week for any reason, I do commend Tom's sermon to you. It is worth a listen on the church website on what is quite a tricky passage, but with warnings that we need to hear in the church in our age just as much as those Christians Peter was writing to needed to hear all those years ago. This willful scepticism, deliberately forgetting and distortion of the truth, what God has said, Peter's warning is that those who do that are heading for destruction. That's the scoffers. But secondly, Peter answers the concerned believers. And maybe that's some of you this morning. You believe in Jesus. You know he has said, I'm coming soon. And you would like to believe that too. It's a great promise. But it has been a long time now, hasn't it? And you look at the world, you watch the news, You see what's happening to your friends and family and you see terrible things. We all do. Terrible things in the Middle East, in other places. People struggling with poverty, victims of abuse, broken homes, all the rest of it. And you think to yourself, maybe, well, why doesn't Jesus come and sort it out? What is he waiting for? Have you ever asked a question like that? Well, if you have, it's to people like you that Peter writes in verses 8 and 9. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Peter is saying, look, God is not like us, just a little bit better, a little bit greater. You know, some people today can't remember a time before mobile phones, can they? Even before smartphones. You know, I can remember when there was dial-up internet. There may be some of you this morning who can remember when many people didn't even have a phone with a cord in their own house and they had to go down the street or borrow a neighbour's. It's not just that Jesus can remember even further back than that, that he had to send telegrams, as if he's like us, just a bit older. 
Now, the difference between us and God is of a completely different order. He's not just like us, but a bit better. Um, he's not, it's not like the difference between you know, Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, and Gandalf, the wise wizard. It's more like the difference between Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, and J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. The Lord created us. Remember when Jesus said those words, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? doesn't even quite make sense in English, does it? That's Jesus' relationship to time. Not just a bit older than you or me, but completely different and beyond time itself. So from our perspective, what may seem like a long delay, from his perspective, it's just a fleeting moment. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But even better than that, don't you just love the the end of verse 9? It's one of those verses which show us something of God's heart. It seems long. Why aren't you coming, Lord? Peter says, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Um, Several of the Psalms cry out, don't they? How long, O Lord? And that's a good prayer for us to pray. And in fact, Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, teaches us to pray that prayer as Christians, to pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come and make everything right. But while we wait, we need to remember, he hasn't come just yet. Why? Not because he's not coming, but because he's patient with you. It's all about his mercy and his love for his people. He doesn't desire people to perish, but everyone to repent. Now, I don't think this means that every single person will repent. History suggests otherwise. The Bible in various places suggests otherwise too. But you know what? If Jesus had returned in the year 2000, then maybe there are some of us here who would have perished. There are certainly some who we will know. He's patient. Again, if you look across to verse 15, Peter says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He's patient for our sake, but he is coming. And so finally, if Jesus is coming back, how should we live? Because, of course, if verse 9 feels wonderful, verse 10 is a little bit scary, isn't it? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Of course, that's very similar to something Jesus said himself. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. It's one of those passages which used to get called fire and brimstone, doesn't it? I'm not going to thump the pulpit, it's all right. The lectern. That day, verse 12, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in its heat. Now, there are all kinds of specific questions we might have here that we don't have time to answer in detail. We can talk about some of them over coffee in a minute if you want to. Uh, Why does Peter speak here about Jesus' return in terms of destruction, using that kind of language? Uh, Whereas other parts of the New Testament, uh, Romans 8 springs to mind, speak more in terms of the the liberation of creation uh, from its groaning, from its bondage. Well, Which one of those two things is it? Um, There's something here in these metaphors about both the discontinuity between this world and the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, but also the continuity and different parts of the scriptures seemingly emphasizing one or other of those. A a bit like the way in which when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was clearly changed. 
and yet also recognizably the same person. Peter's emphasis here is on the old passing away, isn't it? Because he is looking around at everything that is wrong in the world. And he's assuring us that it will be dealt with one day. So he says in verse 10, when Jesus comes, everything will be laid bare. That is his good news. However, literally or metaphorically, we understand all the specific words about the elements and the fire. He is reassuring God's people that there will be judgment. It's okay. Jesus isn't just going to leave everything that it is, as it is. Uh, All those things that are wrong, all of the pain and the suffering, all of the evil, he is going to deal with it. There's going to be justice. And then if you look at verse 11 and verse 14 and verse 17. Since, 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 since everything in this age will be destroyed. Verse 14, since you are looking forward to Jesus' return. Verse 17, since you have been forewarned of what the future holds. What? Verse 11, live godly and holy lives. Verse 14, make every effort to be spotless, blameless and at peace with Jesus. Verse 17, be on your guard so you are not carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. If everything is going to be laid bare, verse 10, when Jesus returns, then that's our motivation to live lives now, which will be fit for God's new creation, which he's bringing. Because we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, Peter says, where righteousness dwells, verse 13. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Don't you long for a world that is like that? That is what Jesus has promised. And that is what we pray for. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our hope. Anyone who's ever emigrated to another country, I don't know if anyone here has done that, or or maybe you've moved to live in England at some point, may experience culture shock. You know, if you move to England, the people are weird. The food is bland. The weather is terrible. That's what people say to me. But it is possible to do things to minimise culture shock before you move, isn't it? You know, see if you can talk to some people. Do some research. Try some food. Well, as people who look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, Peter is saying to us, live as those who are preparing for what is to come. Um, Get ready for a new life which is going to be even better. Prepare for life in eternity. And when he says make every effort to be found spotless and blameless, of course, there's a reminder there of Jesus' first coming that we're about to celebrate at Christmas. We look forward to his return as judge, but of course he came first as saviour so that we might be spotless and blameless. For Christian believers, Jesus' return changes everything. Peter's hope, the reason he wrote his final letter, uh, is to capture our imagination with that hope of Jesus' return, so that we might live as forward-looking people. There's an account on Twitter. I know it's not called Twitter anymore, but I can't get used to that. Um, And it's called simply Daily Death Reminder. And once a day, it posts a tweet which just says, you will die someday. It's kind of morbid, but I suppose it's also a helpful bit of perspective uh, in the midst of all the stuff which is going on in the world. But you know what? As Christians, I think we need a different daily reminder than that, don't we? Uh, We need to be reminded day by day, Jesus will return soon. That's what we hope for. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.